I'd like you to take your Bibles to Genesis 21 today. Genesis 21. We're going to talk about the story, again, of Abraham and the faith and the provision of God. Abraham's faith and God's faith. Abraham's provision and now our provision as well. Speak, O Lord, your people are here with your word opened, ready to hear from you. Certainly more than my voice, Lord, I pray they would hear from the teacher, your Holy Spirit. And with your grace poured out, we will not only receive it intellectually, but it would be part of our lives from this point forward. Only you can bring that kind of transformation, so Lord, we're bowing ourselves to you and asking you to do that. In the precious name of Jesus and for his glory, I pray. Amen. Now remember last week, Abram and Sarai were called of God and God was setting them apart in a unique way. He was saying that he was going to make a nation of Abram. Now we're into the 21st chapter and Abram has been named Abraham. Sarai is now Sarah. And to Abraham, God has said, to your offspring, I'll give this land. Remember, he took him on a journey and showed him where God was going to give the land to this people. Now, it would be over 400 years later, but to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, at that time, Abram had no offspring. God would give him that, and thus he would name him Abraham. He would be the father of nations. But at this point, that had not occurred, and even after the promise of God, it would be 25 years before God would actually bring the fulfillment of that promise. And all along the way, it's not that God was idle. It's not that he was slow about his work. He was working in the heart of Abraham. He was readying him to be a father of nations. He would be the one from whom God would provide a great covenantal promise and to his offspring, all the way to us, you and I are blessed as well as every other nation on the earth because of this great promise. So if you're with me into Genesis chapter 21, let's read the first seven verses together. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, as he had said, and the Lord said, did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Abraham, the word Abram means exalted father. Abraham expands that. It's God telling him, I'm going to fulfill this promise of bringing you offspring. And it won't just be an offspring. It will be a multitude. In fact, he names him Abraham to depict that a father of nations. Sarai, which means princes. No doubt, Abraham, 
saw Sarai as his princess. Do you have a name for your wife, men? Don't tell me. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> uh, half the time around my house, I call mine wifey. I don't know where that came from, but she's wifey to me sometimes. And then the other half the time, it's love. And then a small portion of the time, it's yes, ma'am. <laughs> so... <laughs> You probably have a chosen name for your wife, for Abraham, it was princes. But God, in the promise that he had given to Abraham and to Sarah, said, no, 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 you won't be princes. You will be not my princes, but you will be princes of all. You will have nations for whom will come through you. And then Isaac was born, and Isaac was named, catch this, his name is Laughter. That's what that name means. And it's certainly that uh, Sarah now has laughter in her old age at 90 years old, having a baby and nursing a baby at 90. Wow, that takes 55 plus to a whole nother level, doesn't it? <laughs> Remember when the Lord said that to Abram that he would have a son and Sarah is in the tent and she's laughing? And then the Lord calls her on that because it's a jest laughter. And she's like, no, no, I didn't laugh. Now the Lord is giving her laughter. And it's the right laughter. It's a laughter that's just prompted from the joy of experiencing and knowing the promises of God fulfilled. I know maybe some of you are going through challenges right now and laughter is not in your house. It's not in your heart but laughter is coming again. Joy is coming in the morning. There will be a day that God is going to reset all things as he has promised to reconcile all things unto himself, and your laughter will return. And the more you contemplate that day, the more you look towards that day, the more you trust in God, who is a great sovereign planner, who is bringing about with grace every promise he has ever given, never holding back and never falling short, your laughter will return again. Sarah's laughter had returned. In fact, the whole community was laughing with them. What Isaac brought to Abraham and Sarah was joy in the fullness where once there was sorrow and barrenness, but no more God had provided. Now, God promised from Isaac that nations and kings of people would come. The Lord said to him, I will establish my covenant with him in an everlasting covenant of this offspring. Forever my covenant will remain with him. Now, for 25 years, Abraham had anticipated this promised son while the biological clock was ticking for both him and Sarah. He thought that perhaps Ishmael, who was born of a surrogate, would be that fulfilled promise, but you can't short-circuit the promises of God. You can't rush along the plans of God. God's plan was coming about in a sovereign way, and it would not be through a surrogate. It would be through Sarah. And so they had to wait Finally, when Abraham was 99, the 89-year-old wife of his announced that she was pregnant. No wonder that's when Abraham considered, I'll name this boy, laughter. There's little doubt that that old man was laughing and dancing as the music and celebration of the community was filling all the homes there. 
Can you imagine the celebration that this older couple and the whole community had for them as now they would be proud parents of a baby boy? And then you can't help but think about the kind of things that a father and a son would do, like the bedtime stories that Abraham would tell to Isaac about meeting the Son of God, about Abraham having these serious dialogues with his son about God's plan and his promises that are going to be fulfilled in the generations to come, and that God would bless Isaac and the whole world would be blessed through his offspring. Imagine the long walks that Abraham and Isaac probably had throughout the land of Canaan as Abraham was saying to him, one day all of this will be your inheritance and the inheritance of your descendants. I can only imagine in the night sky as Abraham and Isaac would be looking up at the constellation and wondering, can you count the stars, Isaac? Can you count them? No, my father, I can't count them. There's far too many. Oh, boy, that will be the number of your offsprings one day. Can you imagine the way that they had an exchange together? But then imagine the shocking news of the test coming from God, which moves us to chapter 22. In chapter 22, verse 1, now after these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and he said, here I am. Abraham, here I am. Now, you'll find that throughout the, the Old Testament. When God is calling out to one of his faithful followers, the response is usually, here I am. What is it that you want? I'm, I'm eager to do. I'm presenting myself to you. That's, that's a great way for you and me to rise in the morning. To present ourselves to God. Here I am, God, for the day. I don't know what the day is going to hold, but here I am. Find me faithful today. I open the word of God and start to read it with the pencil in your hand, engaging it. Hearing from the Holy Spirit, who is your teacher, here I am, speak to me, speak to my heart. Here I am, Abram says, and of course, this is going to be a test. Now, I, I'm interested in those first words of verse 1, after these things, because we kind of skipped some things as we're retelling the story. These things that he's talking about are all those tests that he's already given. I'm talking about tests like that had transpired when Abraham and Lot's herds had just gotten too big and too plentiful. God had blessed them immeasurably. And the herdsmen were sort of contentious with one another. And Abraham said, hey, we have too many in our herd to be able to, to shepherd them together. And here's the test. What are you going to do, Abram? This is Lot, his nephew, by the way. He is with him because Abram's brother has died. And he has brought in the orphan in his own life. He's nurtured him, raised him, brought him along with him on this journey to Canaan. And now he says to Lot, you choose. You take the choice of the land that you want. What a test that is. Lot, the now receiver of grace by his uncle, pushes his uncle away and says, I'll take the fertile valley it was the Jordan Valley that is incredibly rich, but also filled with nasty sinners, those of Sodom and Gomorrah in the region. That was a test for Abraham. 
After these things, these tests, what other tests were there? Whether it was the test of the evil schemes of the communities around him, but Abraham proved to be righteous and faithful unto the Lord. There was the test when Sodom's king offered him riches, and he, he didn't fall for that. He knew God would be his provider. And there was another of the departure of his firstborn son, Ishmael. Would he be found in a place of depression, or would he trust God? And then there was the test of his character when there was tension between him and Abimelech. But in all those tests, what God is doing is he's shaping his mind. He's shaping his heart. He's shaping up the man that he had made great promises with who would be a father of a nation. Every test has purpose about it. I should just remind us that God tests all faithful followers. Every faithful follower has enduring tests in our lives and God is using each of those tests to develop our character. He is shaping our heart, not just for this life, but he's shaping our heart and our soul for heaven. Man, we want to get out from under the test. When the trial comes, when the hardship is faced, we're often looking for the way of escape. But God is saying, oh no, I've got purpose in this. I'm working in this. God will bring the test. James 1 assures us that the test that God is bringing into our lives is a test of faith, and it's producing steadfastness. And as we continue in steadfast faith through the trials, God is actually completing us. He's making us more perfect so that we would lack nothing. Every test has purpose, and every faithful follower is tested so when you ask God, where are you in my suffering? Or pastor, where is God in the midst of this? When I'm going through this trial, where is God? And the answer is, he is right there with you. And in the moments of your weakness, his perfected strength is helping you, guiding you, shaping you, nurturing you, crafting you more in the image of Jesus Christ. After these things, those three little words are very impacting words, aren't they? But now it's going to come a major test. God promised and gave Abram his son, born of Sarah. And this would be the fulfillment of the hope that they had for all those years. But now God seemingly speaks the unimaginable words. Look in verse 2 of chapter 22. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of, of Morah, excuse me, Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, in the Old Testament, a burnt offering was a, an offering that was fully consumed. It was an expression of worship that was given unto the Lord, and it was to show complete devotion to God. So I'm giving this as a burnt offering. I'm giving you every part of this sacrifice. I'm holding nothing back. That, that offering, that animal offering is going to be totally consumed. Now that's different than many of the offerings that are given in the Old Testament. For example, the peace offering. The peace offering is brought by someone. It uh, just commemorates and worships and fellowships in the sweetness of God. It's what they're coming to God in sweet fellowship by the provision that God has provided them. And the animal parts of it are given. 
the kidney, a lobe of the liver, the fat was given unto the Lord. And that was burned on the altar. And then a portion of the animal, actually the best portions of the animal, animal are given to the priests for their use. And then the rest of it is for the person who's making the offering and all the participants who are with that individual, and they have a feast. That's my kind of offering, isn't it yours? Portions of it are kept for this themselves. It's just a, a way of demonstrating in worship the peace that God provides. But the burnt offering is different. The burnt offering is totally consumed, and it is symbolizing complete surrender, complete dedication, an, an atonement for the unintentional sins that one has committed. So when people gave a, a burnt offering, they're giving 100% of that animal. Now here, Abraham is called to give a burnt offering, and the burnt offering is his son Isaac. And in that, he is going to express 100% surrender to God, fully trusting God. I'm, I'm giving all of him to you. An unwavering faith into the obedience of God and a profound trust that God has a provision and a purpose and a plan. And although I don't understand it at the moment, God, I'm going to give all of this to you. And of course, it is demonstrating this deep relationship that God has with Abraham and Abraham has with God, that he valued God more than any other relationship or any other thing, including his most cherished his son Isaac. It's a foreshadowing, isn't it, of the cross and Christ and his sacrifice. It's, of course, a greater narrative than what we find in chapter 22 of Genesis. The greater narrative is this expression of what will be fulfilled by God the Father and his only begotten son, Jesus. Grand theological truths come out of this chapter. Probably, most importantly to us, a substitutionary atonement that God is going to provide a substitution for the requirement of sacrifice. And it will not be Isaac. It will not be someone else's son. It will be God's very own perfect son. So much of what we read in the Old Testament is pointing towards Calvary. Two millennia after this time with Abraham and Isaac there, God is going to give the central theme of Christianity, and that is that redemption requires a substitutionary sacrifice for which only Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, could accomplish. And so we know that. In the Old Testament and all these sacrifices that we read and, and all this that we're seeing unfolding in Leviticus and in other places of God's law, we read that all of those sacrifices are pointing to a great, perfect sacrifice, which is Christ on Calvary's cross. And in every occasion that we read, most every occasion that we read, we're reading it with the intention of seeing Jesus on that cross. Uh, when you read the 22nd chapter, the 22nd Psalm, you're reading about the crucifixion of Christ and you're reading it from the perspective of Jesus. When you read about the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, you're reading about what Christ himself would experience on that cross. So much of what we read about in the Old Testament and we contemplate, we think about, and we even show gratitude to God for it, we're thinking from the perspective of Jesus, what he endured, what he experienced, and what he accomplished. 
But in this story of Abraham and Isaac, this story is pointing towards Calvary, of course, a foretelling of Christ's sacrifice as the Lamb of God. But uniquely, it is giving us a perspective from God the Father. We're understanding more about God the Father in this moment. As Abraham and Isaac are moving towards Mount Moriah, we see Jesus moving towards the same mount where he will hang suspended on the cross of Calvary. And as we feel the anguish of Abraham and the tensions that are rising with every step, we can't help but feel the tensions of God the Father who is going to provide his only begotten for sinners and rebels like you and me. As we hypothetically put our hand to the chest of Abraham and we feel the beating of his heart, the rapid pounding of that heart, we feel the fullness of God's love shuddering with the impact of hammer blows, piercing his knee, his feet, and his hands. That crucifixion scene that Abraham and Isaac are foretelling is one that was fulfilled on Calvary's cross, but planned from eternity past. It's the cost of love and redemption, and both Jesus and the Father were more than willing to pay the cost for each of us. So God's call for Abraham and his son Isaac to go to Mount Moriah was a call that Jesus and he would complete as well. The difference is that Abraham is going to leave the mountain full of joy because God is going to provide a substitute. It will not be that his son will be offered as a burnt offering. He will be filled with gratitude as he's leaving that mountain, but God, upon looking to the mountain, will wrench and be wrought with the horrendous suffering and death of his only begotten son who paid the wages of our sin on our account. So I want us to take a moment to view what took place on Calvary, rather than focusing, though, on Jesus nailed to the cross, I want you to see your heavenly Father giving his only begotten as a substitutionary sacrifice on a tree at Mount Moriah. And there, Jesus is paying the debt of our sin, and there the heavenly Father is demonstrating boundless love and unwavering commitment to our redemption. Seeing the Father and the Son, we witness the profound, divine, unified plan of God the Son willing to embrace unimaginable agony and God the Father giving, offering the ultimate act of mercy to us. And as we broaden the perspective from the scene of Calvary, it becomes a testament of Christ's incredible sacrifice, but also the Father's immeasurable grace. Today, we're reminded of this selfless act of love which was orchestrated to bridge the gap between the fallenness of mankind and the perfection of the Creator, inviting us to peace and forgiveness and eternal life through the crucified Savior and through His resurrection. So when we think about that scene, we ought to see Jesus, but we ought to hear the voice of God. What is the voice of God that you're hearing what do you hear as his beloved son hangs suspended between heaven and earth with your sin on him what do you hear God saying to you as he's pouring out the wrath justice that is required for your sin 
I can tell you he is not riled against you. He is not railing against you because of your sin. Instead, what God is doing is he is calling out to you in love. Boy, that kind of gives us a pause. He is saying to us, Randy, Meadowbrook, my grace is sufficient to overcome your brokenness. My mercy is greater than your sin. My son is perfect to carry the weight of justice. That's what we ought to hear. That's what the Father is doing. He's calling out to us, reminding us that sin's debt is paid and that the wall that we put up by our sin that separated us from the holiness of God has now been torn down. And he's inviting us to enter into a relationship of peace with him. Paul never got over that. In every letter that I've read that the Apostle Paul writes, he always includes grace and mercy and peace because he never got over the fact that God was offering his only begotten son to provide for our peace with his grace and mercy. So the voice that you're hearing of God about the provision of his son for your sin is a voice of love. It's a voice beckoning to you. It's a voice calling to you. Oh, it's a challenging voice, no doubt. It's a demanding voice, but it's a voice of love. Now, let's continue the story and just ponder for a moment the obedience and the faith that Abraham and Isaac are demonstrating. Look at verse 2 of chapter 22. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to, the, to his young men, stay here with the donkey I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. The redundancy of so they went, both of them together, is very purposeful. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses has written that with clarity. He is driving home a point that this is not just about Abram offering his son. 
It's not just about Isaac being willing to lay down his life at the call and command of his father, but it is both of them together. And in that, we see a glorious picture of the unity of God the Father and God the Son providing for our salvation, both of them moving in that direction to provide for our salvation. They're moving in it together. This scene is like a dress rehearsal for Calvary. God has called for the sacrifice to be made, and Abraham takes the wood of the offering, and he lays it on his son Isaac, and Isaac will carry the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain, just as Jesus would carry the cross in which he too would be crucified. Now, although we're uncertain of Isaac's age at this point, if you've got it in your mind, a little seven or eight-year-old boy, you got the wrong thing in your mind. Most scholars believe that he's in his 20s. This is a man. This is a man who is walking with his father to make sacrifice and worship to their God. Dad, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where's the lamb? I cannot help but wonder how that simple question reverberated through Abraham. Did he in that moment stumble? Did he stagger with that question as he walked towards that mountain? Did it shudder his heart with the raging of the thoughts trying to frame the words in response, did he attempt to speak in a strong and confident voice while his soul is crying out to God the Father? Did he attempt to not let his son know the anguish for which he was journeying? With simple assurance, he says, God will provide the lamb. God will provide, and oh, how he provided for more than trusting God for this immediate situation, Abraham had a greater view. I believe that he knew ultimately God would provide the sacrificial lamb, the perfect lamb, his own son. I think he understood what was happening in this moment. Isaac accepted his father's confidence and faith, and the journey continued. And the Bible simply says that so they went together. Isaac willingly walking with his father and although he was uncertain how the day was going to end and how it would unfold he trusted his father and he trusted the God of his father ultimately the test was at hand and Abraham built the altar he placed the wood in the order he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar he reached out and took the knife for which he would kill his son in order to offer him as a burnt offering but the angel of the lord who by the way is none other than the pre-incarnate jesus christ calls out abraham abraham oh here's this word again here i am here i am don't lay a hand on the boy he calls don't hurt him in any way, for now I know you truly fear God, for you have not withheld your son, your only son. Jesus could have easily have said, Abraham, stop. Abraham, I will be the one on that very mountain who will lay down my life. I will be the sacrifice. I'll be the sacrifice for you. I'll be the sacrifice for Isaac. I'll be the sacrifice for all who have faith in me. I will lay down my life for the sins of the world. Abraham, stop. 
Suddenly, Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And he probably called out, Oh, son, God has provided. God has provided. At lasting testimony, Abraham determined from that point forward, this place, and my God, is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord is my provider. Do you ever use that name of God? Have you prayed to him, Jehovah Jireh? Thank you for the provision. When you contemplate your salvation, do you do so as Jehovah Jireh has provided for you? It's important that we do that. The Lord has provided because you and I have this wonky way of thinking sometimes that we've somehow provided for our own self. That somehow God is pleased with our intentions, our works, our deeds, and that we've made some measure of provision. You've made no measure of provision for your salvation, and neither have I. For Jehovah Jireh alone has provided for us. It's God alone. Abraham recognized that, and so he named that place after his God, the Lord will provide. Uh, Consider what must have surged through Isaac in this moment as he was released from his bindings and raised up off that altar. What thoughts do you think were racing through his mind as he watched that ram bleed out? How he must have wept as he helped his dad place that animal on the altar, on the wood, and light the fire. Tears of relief and joy must have flowed from him as he contemplated the life of that substitute right there in front of him. Consider Isaac's insights to this substitutionary sacrifice and from that day forward what his worship must have been like and the, and the anticipation of the grand Lamb of God, who would be the fulfillment of this substitutionary sacrifice system. Imagine. Tell the story again. That's the theme of this series. Just going back and looking at some very familiar stories. Man, they're incredible. But they call us to take some next steps. And those steps are always in faith and obedience, just like we saw with Abraham and Isaac. Let me mention four of them this morning. The first is, have saving faith in God's gracious gift of Jesus, the perfect substitutionary sacrifice who has accomplished our redemption. Put your faith there. I had some of you very vividly in my mind when I wrote that point because I want so badly for your faith to be given to God in Christ. That's the next step for you. If you died tonight without that faith, you will die eternally separated from God in a very literal place called hell. And so my hope and my expectant joy is that you will have faith in God who has provided the substitute for your redemption. Secondly, in the next steps, trust God's provision. Just trust him as you're walking with him. Trust him for he is Jehovah Jireh. He is your provider. Trust him. Some of you are going through the darkest days of your life, the most days filled with grief and mourning and sadness and sorrow and unexpected results and and tests that come back negative and doctors who are saying the end is near and relationships that are broken and financial pressures that don't get relieved 
and you're wondering, God, where are you? I can tell you he's right there with you providing. Trust him, trust him. You say, well, it's not getting better right now. Oh, there's a greater day of redemption coming. He is reconciling all things, including that, to himself. And in his perfect timing, you will know it. Trust him. The third is have a deep relationship with God. There's no question that Abraham and Isaac had a deep relationship with God, but I think it went deeper after this experience. They were wholeheartedly and unreserved in their relationship with God. It's evident in the offering up of Isaac. Nothing is greater than God. Abraham loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength, and he would withhold nothing. And that's where you and I ought to be, living our life unto the Lord. Here's the way Paul penned that. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to lay your lives down as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. It is our reasonable act of worship, sacrificial living, and the fourth step is communion. It's a moment to pause. It's a perfect day for that. To pause in remembrance of our Lord who is the substitutionary lamb, who does take away the sins of the world, and who calls us to be saved. Now our musicians are moving into place and others who will be leading us in song I want us to sing a verse while you're seated before we have communion of nothing but the blood. We recognize that it's the righteous blood of Christ that was spilt for our salvation. And we just want to pause and think about that. If you're in a seat, you'll find the elements in a little cup in front of you. Both the bread and the cup is together. Uh, the juice is together. Just take those elements, and as you're holding them, contemplate and show great gratitude to Jehovah Jireh. That bread is unleavened. Leavened in the scripture points out sin, points to sin. It's a demonstration of that. It says, man, you let sin stay in your life, then it's going to permeate every other part of your life. So Christ has come to take away that sin, and he calls us to live in holiness some of you ought to examine right now your life, your heart, your intention, and just say, oh, Lord, I confess of my sin, and I repent. I turn away from that. With your justice and your faithfulness, cleanse me. As you hold the cup, the cup of the fruit of the cup, you're recognizing that this is a symbol of the shed blood of Christ, the establishment of the covenant. Abraham, God made a covenant with him. Isaac, God extended the covenant to Isaac. And Jesus has extended a covenant, a new covenant with us by the shedding of his blood. Let's sing the first verse of this known hymn and contemplate. Bye. 
Father, I can't help but think in the midpoint of Luke's narrative, you said that Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem. In much the same way, Abram and Isaac were moving towards Mount Moriah. At that point, Jesus was moving to the same mount to bear the burdens of our sin, to bear the wrath of your justice. And oh, Father, we thank you for that obedience. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the way you comforted him and guided him, was with him. And Father, as we hold the cup, we think about the shed blood of our Lord that cleanses us from unrighteousness. Our faith is given to him that only he could provide that kind of life. Only he could bear our sin to forgive us and to give us his righteousness. Only he could overcome sin, death, the grave. And as we hold the bread in our hand, Lord, we're remembering that Jesus was perfect in every way. Never a sin in his life, never a thought of sin, absolute, perfect holiness, righteousness. And we bless you for his sinless life so that he, the one who knew no sin, might take our sin upon himself, that we might have the righteousness of God. So we pause in remembrance with gratitude and with your grace, a pledge to live life worshipfully, laying ourselves down as living sacrifices to the glory of Christ and the good of his kingdom, I pray.